Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're continuing our Team Top 10 Prospects podcast series today with the Cincinnati Reds. We're going to talk about Ellie De La Cruz and what an exciting young talent he is, what the Reds got with the additions of Noel B. Marte and Edwin Arroyo to their farm system, and a status update on Matt McLean and just all the general shortstop depth in this system. To do that, I'm joined by J.J. Cooper. J.J., how are you? Good. How are you doing, Kyle? Doing all right. JJ is uh, kind of the dean of the red system. I believe the first year you did them was what, 2002? Not two. I, I think it was more like four, but okay. I, I do remember BJ Szymanski. Um, it was the year before Homer Bailey, I want to say. I mean, it was a uh, it was a dire time. I, I may have that answer while we're talking, but it was like, I remember writing up, uh, there were guys in the top 10 that year, I think that I wrote up that was like he projects as a backup catcher at the big league level. That was at the point where if you were drafted by the Reds as a pitcher, like the the, the, the mere act of signing your name to the contract meant that you had a shoulder injury that would cost you multiple years. It was a yeah. dire time. Yeah, and things got better for the Reds for a period there on the late 2000s, early 2010s. But talking about dire times – uh, they're in one of those right now. The Reds went 62-100 and 100 last year. That was their worst record as a franchise since 1982. So you talk about the dire times of the early to mid-2000s. That was better than what happened last year. And look, this is a franchise that has by no means been a juggernaut. They have not won a playoff series since 1995. Um, it's 62-100 and 100 last year, and that was intentional in some ways. This is a team that has been in the middle of a rebuild now for the better part of a few years. But what stands out and what I think is probably very frustrating and concerning is they've traded away now most of their top players. And for most of the trades, they got little to nothing back. Rachel Iglesias, Tucker Barnhart, Wade Miley, they literally got nothing after putting them on waivers. Um, Sonny Gray was an underwhelming return. You know, Eugenio Suarez and Jesse Winker, that deal looked okay at the time. But, you know, Brandon Williamson, who was the top prospect in that deal, has kind of taken a step back. They traded Luis Castillo during the season last year. So they've traded this whole collection of good big leaguers, and they've got two top 100 prospects out of it, some depth, and, and a lot of guys who frankly just aren't prospects. I mean, JJ, where is this organization right now? Because last year was bad, and it doesn't look like there's a clear path to them getting better anytime soon. I might disagree with you a little bit on that. I do think that they have upper level depth in the minors. I do think that guys who are not top hundred prospect that they've gotten back, like a uh, Christian, you know, they, they, the chase petties of the world, Spencer steer, Christian Arcanacio strand. Like they've gotten some other guys who I, I think are, are going to help them in, in some way at the uh, you know, at the MLB level or some, at least some of them will. I do like the, the depth of their lower level, international signings and the talent that's going to kind of be reaching low a, but quite clearly I would say that this is a team that if you're a Reds fan right now, it, it is a dire time, not only because you have a utter lack of major league success in recent years, but you also have, I don't know another way to put it, but you have ownership that essentially is saying <laughs> at multiple times, yeah, it's not you good. Know, if, if ownership's kind of your, your goal of ownership, good ownership, like if you major league owners are, I can often be described as, is that they're often best, you know, known of, but not heard. Like most teams, if you think about it, your successful teams, generally, you're not thinking about the owners very often. If you are, it's probably a bad sign. Like, you know, but at the same time, really what you don't want, is the ownership of your team saying effectively we're we're in trouble we're not going to be any good and we'll probably never be any good because the system as a whole ensures that we'll never be any good well and also saying well where are you going to go what else are you going to do as opposed to actually right. engaging well, in a good I, faith effort to try and you know create some goodwill it, it, it has not been a great uh say 8 months or so for for reds ownership that's for sure in terms of messaging but that was so we had the at the start of last year we had the where else are you going to go, and now this offseason we've had the uh, the 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 luncheon the rosy luncheon where yeah. essentially said 
we got some good prospects, uh, you know, where we, we've got some good prospects. And by the way, we'll probably just have to lose them again when they reach, you know, they'll, when they get good. Like, for one, that's just not true with competent ownership. I don't know another way to put it. Like, you can look at other teams out there around baseball and comfortably say there are small revenue teams who manage to hold on to stars. Like Joe Sheehan just recently did a study of this and made the points. Like if you look at it, like half of the big money long-term, like Joe Maurer was a twin for the entirety of Joe Maurer's career. That's a homegrown, truly homegrown. Cause he's also from the, but homegrown star drafted, developed, and spent his entire career as a twin. You look at the Royals who developed Salvador Perez and kept him, if they want to, Salvador Perez will retire as a lifetime Royal. Again, Kansas City has no advantages over Cincinnati as far as being able to retain talent. There's nothing there where you go, oh, well, they can do that in Kansas City, but you can't ask that of Cincinnati. And then you have examples that are, you know, again, there's, you we could go down the list. The Reds have actually had a stretch when they had a stretch of success that did not pay off at the playoff level, but did have success in the regular season. They were a competitive a team. They are a consistently competitive team. Yes. And they developed it homegrown. And by the way, they really, their problem there, they had a team, they had a cycle. And then the problem that they had with that team, they fired Dusty Baker, <laughs> but partly that, but also same ownership group as they have now. And they didn't sell off. They basically said, instead of saying, you know what, it's time to, it's time to move on and do a shift. They actually held on to a lot of players a year too long. They didn't get anything of any real value for the Todd Frazier's and the Jay Bruce's. And the Johnny Cuatos and the guys like that. Well, this Chapman, and, although that was there was extenuating circumstances yes. there, but but they also didn't get a lot there. I will say I I'm never going to begrudge a team for attempting to put a competitive product on the field, and if it doesn't work, it happens. I think it's more when they're going and saying, "Well, we're not good, we're never going to be good, and where else are you going to go?" That's that's not a great message to send to fans. Um, but I do want to dive into the players on the field here, JJ. I will say, if you are looking for hope, one of the things that's encouraging if you're a Reds fan is there is a little bit of the makings of, of a promising young rotation. We talked about they traded Luis Castillo. They traded Tyler Molly at the deadline. But Hunter Green certainly had a rocky start, but it actually finished stronger. And, and his overall season line was not terrible. Um, you know, th there's things to work with there. And then Nick Lodolo came up and was really, really good when he was healthy last year. Kind of sneaky, really, really good. You know, Graham Ashcraft as well came up, did okay for his first run through the majors. So there's some pitchers to work with. Alexis Diaz mm -hmm. is a great find in the bullpen. Um, there are players to work with. And of course, Tyler Stevenson's been good one healthy. Jonathan India had a down year, but he's also only a year removed from winning rookie of the year. So it's not like there's nothing here talent-wise. And you mentioned there is some talent in the farm system, particularly up the middle talent. But is it enough to get them from 62 wins to 92 wins? That seems like a little bit of a stretch, especially with no. uh, the lack of willingness <laughs> to invest um, from ownership. All right. So let's get away from the negative. Let's get to the positive, yes. the exciting stuff. Ellie De La Cruz, the number one prospect in this farm system, arguably the most exciting prospect in the minors. Again, not the best. He's not number one in our top 100, but he's top 10. And if you're going just pure excitement factor, he probably does win that. Um, this is a six foot six, crazy power, crazy speed, crazy athleticism, left-handed hitter who, I mean, last year as switch a 20-year-old in double A. Switch hitter. Last year as a 20-year-old in double A, um, almost had a 30-30 season. 28 homers, 47 steals. I should say high in double A. He finished there in double A, but... I guess what I'll ask is how good can Ellie De La Cruz be? Because you see these unbelievable skills and tools, but you also see an approach that leads to a strikeout rate that is definitely on the concerning side. Yeah. So what I would say is, is that Ellie De La Cruz legitimately has a chance. If it all comes together 
he's one of the three or four best players in baseball. If it all comes together. Now, there's still a to-do list there. Like that this is not when we when you talk about a player like uh, you know, when we talk about uh Shohei Otani a couple of years ago, right? And we're like, I don't know if he could do the two-way thing, but if he does, he can be one of the best players in baseball. His to-do list was stay healthy doing the two-way thing and be as good as you've been. When you talked about Ron Lacuna when he was ready for the majors, and it's like if he can just do what he's done in the minors at the major league level, he's one of the best players in baseball. Those were those things. We can't say that with Ellie De La Cruz. You can't say if Ellie De La Cruz just does what he's done in the minors, he's one of the best players in the major leagues because players who strike out over 30% of the time at the major league level have some offensive issues. Now, that, it's say, players who strike out 30% of the time in the minor leagues tend to strike out closer to 40% in the major leagues. Sure. And that's where the issues come in is that there's not a great track record of guys striking out at this rate in the minors having major league success, but he's so young and so talented. You're looking to see if he can make an adjustment moving into but, next year and lower that strikeout rate. Right. But that's my point though, is, is if he, if you said he's, Players generally strike out at a higher rate in the majors, like if they have a higher strikeout rate than they did the minors. But my point is, in his case, he can't just maintain what he's doing in the jump to the majors and be successful. He has to actually improve his biggest weakness while climbing the ladder, which is a difficult thing to do. But that said, as you just laid out, that's the that's the that's the the, the one glaring flaw in what is otherwise an incredibly well-rounded player. You are talking about someone who legitimately, we talk about O'Neill Cruz being the tallest shortstop of all time, and he is, but it's still hard to kind of find a whole lot of people who think that O'Neill Cruz is going to spend a long time at shortstop at the major league level, probably going to move. No one's really saying that about Ellie De La Cruz. Ellie De La Cruz, it is important to Ellie De La Cruz that he is the red shortstop. And when you look at for all these shortstops that they have, if he gets there with his fluidity, I don't see any of these guys moving Ellie De La Cruz off of shortstop because I, Edwin Arroyo is better defensively probably than Ellie De La Cruz, but he's also a, a couple levels behind him. And I promise you this, there's Edwin Arroyo is not the guy who's going to show up to the big league level and they're going to go, Ellie? move aside, we have Edwin Arroyo now. Even if he's a little better defensively, no one who was better defensively than Derek Jeter moved Derek Jeter off of shortstop for the Yankees. This is a guy who has the ability to be a shortstop, a legit shortstop, and be a 30-30 guy at the major league level if he improves his contact rate. And as you said, he is, the tricky part of this is he's so young. If this was a 23-year-old who had four years in full season minors and he was striking out this rate, I would say my skepticism on his ability to improve his contact ability would be, it would be very, my, my skepticism would be very high in Ellie De La Cruz's case. There, there's a, there's a learning process that goes on through the minors, but part of that learning process is that point where you find that you can't succeed doing what you're doing because of whatever is the point where you say, okay, I've got really got to fix this. Ellie De La Cruz hasn't hit that moment yet. Ellie De La Cruz has not had that level where he hit and it's like, oh, my aggressiveness, my willingness to swing at pitches that maybe I should take are really causing me problems. I need to improve this now. Wherever Ellie De La Cruz has gone, Ellie De La Cruz has been one of the best players in that league at, yeah. as also one of the youngest <laughs> players in that league. So yeah. it's hard to say that he can improve this because that's the to-do list, but it's also, as I think I've cited too many times now, he's the only player that we can point to who hit 300 in the minors last year and struck out 30% of the time. Those two <laughs> numbers usually don't go together. Yeah, with him, again, we've talked about it. You see the amount of ground he closes with his long strides. It's it's crazy. It's freakish. The power is enormous. Just, again, from a pure excitement level, he's probably the most exciting player in the minors. You pull up just his highlight reel, and it's incredible. But, again, there's more to what he does than just the highlights. There's also the non-highlights, and we talked about 
again, the strikeout rate and just needing to improve that a little bit. Is it pitch recognition? Is it swing length? Is it pitch selection? Where Where is it that he needs to kind of make the biggest tweak? There's always, there's going to be length in there. There's always going to be swing and miss. You're, you're talking about this. This is a guy like, if you think of Six, like a five, he long, long limb, yeah. <laughs> it, you're, you're, Fernando Tatis Jr. is like the, the ideal example if you look at it. And now Tatis did not strike out at the same rate, but did have a strikeout issue at times in the minors. Also walked at a better rate. Like you, you would, you would love to see a little bit less aggressiveness to go with the swing length, you know, concerns and all that with, with Ellie. But I would say it's kind of a combination of those things, but here's the other part that kind of also gives me optimism with him. He is, you always like makeup is a, is a very fraught word in many ways. But so like, but I'll just say this when I, everyone I've ever talked to who knows Ellie, when you talk to people who know Ellie about Ellie, they always talk about the driven nature of him. Like he made a point to really dig in on learning English because he thought it was important, partly because also he wants to be the star of the, you know, of the organization and being able to communicate to uh, pretty much all of his teammates is useful for that, man, for that. When you talk about when he, whenever he's had kind of things to work on, everyone who knows Ellie, who talks about Ellie talks about how, you won't find someone who works harder at it. You won't find someone who is more driven to be the best that they can be than L.A. De La Cruz. He's one of those guys who, while being almost without fail the youngest or one of the youngest players on whatever team he is, he has that kind of magnetic effect. He has that. You saw this with Wander Franco coming through the minors where you would. I remember being at the Midwest League All-Star game and Wander Franco's 18, all his the seven other All-Stars from that race team are like range from 19 to 24, 25. And they're all like, you know, they're all kind of follow Wander around because Wander <laughs> was the one who set the pace. When Ellie De La Cruz comes to double A, you know, you have first round picks on there. Like a Matt McLean doesn't be like, oh, I'm the first round pick. What, what do you mean that I'm going to play some more second base, you know, type stuff and all that? No, everyone knows it's like, I mean, if you have eyes, it's like, this is the dude I will, you know, I, I will adjust to make it, you know, to accept the fact that we're all basically living in Ellie's world. We're just part, you know, we're, we're satellites that rotate around the same. <laughs> yeah, certainly a very, very talented player. As we talked about a top 10 overall prospect in baseball, an easy number one prospect in this system. JJ, there was some debate here, the two to five group. Now it's interesting. It's four guys who were not in the Reds form system at this time last year. Three guys who were acquired in trades, as well as their first-round pick, Cam Collier. Take us through this group. How fluid was it? How nebulous was it? And, and how does it kind of stack up? We've had interesting debates about Noel V. Marte and Edwin Arroyo because they've, they've always been paired together in some ways. Like I wouldn't say just, always. I would say starting last year. Going into last year, it was right. having done the Mariners system. No, but when, Marte when was I mean paired, when I, when I mean paired, sorry, but when I mean paired, I mean they were in the system together and then they were traded in the together. system together. So there's never been a point where one was in one system and one was in another system. And you're like, why are you comparing Noel V. Marte and Odoroya? You've had two shortstops who were Mariners prospects and now you have two shortstops who are Reds prospects. And there has been kind of an interesting debate because they're very different types of players. Edward Arroyo is a shortstop. Like he's an up the middle. That's his best asset. If you said, what do you like best about Evan Arroyo? It's the fact that this is a absolutely legit true shortstop. The best fielding shortstop of all these shortstops we're going to talk about with the, with the reds. And there's some offensive potential there as well, which he showed, especially in the first half of the season, and did not show nearly as well after the trade. Noel Marte, like Josh Norris for us, did kind of this prospect combo thing where if you took the best attributes of one prospect and the best attributes of another and fused them together, what you would get. If you fused Noel Marte and Edwin Arroyo together, you've got a guy who's better than... You've got Carlos Correa. You've got Carlos yeah, you know, because that. Yeah, but Noel Marte has always been notable because he does have a 
if you could fuse Noah V. Marte's plate discipline with Ellie De La Cruz, we would check off, you know, a, a big part of the concern with Ellie De La Cruz. Noel V. Marte's always had some understanding of how to draw walks. And most notably, he always hits the ball. He's always had the ability to hit the ball really hard. He and, hits rockets. Yes. When he gets a hold yes. of the ball, it's a sight to see. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, there's always been concerns about, okay, when I say concerns, he's he's not a shortstop long-term, almost assuredly. And the Reds have already kind of said, look, if you look at our shortstop landscape, think of him as a third baseman more than a shortstop at this point. Yeah. Um, and so there's that. But then you also have, like, he's kind of also been up and down. He had really struggled at the start of the year, then had a very good midpoint in the year, then had the trade and was fine after the trade, but then had some struggles in the fall league. It hasn't, again, he's young. You, you hope that there's going to be more consistency. Consistency has always been his issue. Even when he was in Modesto and I saw him in 2021, that, that's the big thing with him, consistency and focus. When he is dialed in, he's a spectacular talent, but there's stretches where he's not dialed in. When I say stretches, I mean weeks at a time. And so, and, and so that's kind of the concern with him, I would say. But in, again, you've got two guys here who both have, very clear paths to being useful big league players. The interesting part of this is because this is the team that has so many shortstops, middle infielder types. If, if you are hesitant and concerned about the risk of these class a, you know, infielders, well then how about, can I give you a Spencer steer? I've got another type of player over here, which is a guy who has probably a little less upside physically is nothing. Like if you took, put Noel V. Marte and Spencer Steer side by side and said, both of these players can play shortstop. You would say, really? Like they're, they're very different physically, but Spencer Steer who did reach the majors, you know, last year for the Reds is again, another kind of like another guy who I think could be a very valuable part of a Reds team over the next three, four, five years, because he can play multiple positions. He can hit physically. He's, He's not particularly large. He's not particularly overwhelming, you know, all of that. But he's also, he's the flip side. There's less upside. There's less, but there's also less variance. This is the guy who's performed at every level of the minors, has reached the majors, and should be part of your 2023 Reds team in some way, shape, or form. Because as we talked earlier during the depressing moment of the podcast, <laughs> they could use some help. Absolutely. All right, JJ, we've talked about some of the top position players in the system. I do want to talk to you about some of the arms that are in the back half of this top 10 and beyond. Uh, first, we're going to take a quick break. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back breaking down the Reds farm system. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside J.J. Cooper. J.J., we talked about the Reds' really enviable amount of, of shortstops, and, and you can include third baseman in that. You look at Cam Collier, you look at Spencer Steer, Sal Stewart, you know, Christian Encarnacion Strand might move to first because he's a third baseman now. They've got a lot of really good infielders. 
There aren't any pitchers in this top five, and seven of the top eight prospects in this system are position players. Now, they did graduate some good young pitchers to the big leagues last year. We talked about them earlier. Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, Graham Ashcraft. So there are good young arms in this organization. Um, In terms of the guys who are still prospect eligible in the farm system, Chase Petty checks in as the top pitching prospect in the system currently. What put him ahead of the others, especially just given Connor Phillips and, and Brandon Williamson, you know, have shown some some impressive stuff at, at higher levels, Williamson in particular. They all three carry, I think, pretty similar BA grades for us. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of you know separation between these. But the thing I would say is, is that Chase Petty is another kind of weird case of a guy who's different than what at least I thought he was going to be. If you remember Chase Petty a few years ago in the draft, he was probably most notable for like, wow, he throws 101. You know, he can get triple digits as a high school pitcher, which I I can see Kyle's like, you know, red lights warning signs going off right now because that's not exactly a demographic. The throwing 100 while you're still in high school is not a a group of pitchers as a whole who've had a – a whole lot of future big league success. Tyler Kolick raises his hand. Holt Griffin, I could name some Probably others. Uh, yeah. Grant Holmes, you know, like so. But to Chase Petty's credit, the person that we're talking about now, the pitcher we're talking about now, is a very different pitcher. He doesn't throw really close to 100 very often, He, but he spent all of 2022 taking his turn every fifth day, every sixth day, and and showing that he really knows how to pitch and that he can have success not at 105% effort, but at like 95% effort most of the time. He usually had 96, 97, maybe even an eight in the back in there when he needed it. But what he went out there, he's like, you know what? I'm going to pitch. And 92 to 93 to 94 is enough for me to have success And by the way, while I'm working on improving my secondaries, which are getting better and better, and really showed that he could pitch, he's kind of taken himself, I would say, from a very frightening kind of description, which is the high school flamethrower whose delivery is a little funky, and you don't know how well he's going to be able to maintain that, to a guy now who's like, no, this guy really enjoys the craft of pitching demonstrated durability in a level that I, I I always highlight because it is important. Like if you want to ask me what is one of the most important things that a young high school draftee pitching prospect can do, it is go out there and demonstrate that you can handle the load of a pro workload week after week. And I don't mean 180 innings, but I do mean also not 50. And in Petty's a lot of guys can't do that. Like we see, like Matt, we just got the news about Matt Allen recently. The uh, the, the the Mets, he wasn't a first rounder, but he got first round money. And Matt Allen is going to miss the 2023 season to have a revision, a second Tommy John surgery after missing the 2022 season and the 2021 season and having to sit out 2020 because of COVID. And so, and you go, oh, but that's just one example, JJ. It's like, no, we also could talk about Ethan Hankins and we also could talk about Mike Nickerak and we also and unfortunately there's a lot there's a lot of these Nick Bitsko there are a lot of these prep pitchers who are top guys in their class and they struggle to demonstrate the durability that you have to have to be a big league starting pitcher Chase Petty has demonstrated a strong indicator that he has that ability it came and in at just under 100 there. innings in his first full season coming out of high school, which is what you want to see. Again, high school, 19-year-olds, you don't want them throwing 150, 180 innings. Right. If they get to 100, he was a tick under 100, but you're right. He stayed healthy the whole season, You know, put together a bunch of five-inning starts. I mean, there's it was the promising indicator you want to see. And also finish the season strong. I think that's what's really notable is he got promoted to high A at the end of the year. And it looks like here, four of his final five starts – he allowed one run or less, and you know a couple of them are four innings, but a couple were five. He, he stayed strong through the end of the year, so I do think it's notable you talk about. He showed the polish, the maturity to realize, hey, 
I don't need to throw a hundred every pitch. And I probably won't be effective if I'm just rear back and throw as hard as I can take it down a little bit, throw strikes. The walk rate was, was under three, um, stayed healthy the whole year. It was certainly an encouraging step forward. I do want to contrast a little bit to Connor Phillips and Brandon Williamson, who I talked about are really, really talented pitchers who were acquired in the trade for Eugenio Suarez and Jesse Winker, both of whom have shown really good stuff at times. Phillips' command has always been very, very wonky. And Williamson had shown improved command and control with the Mariners, but it took a little bit of a step back last year. Do these guys project as starters, relievers right now? What do you make of these two moving forward? Because they were they were big parts of a major deal for the Reds. I, I would say with Connor Phillips, with both of these guys, you would you have to say right now it's kind of on the range of probability, right? Like I, I cannot a hundred percent state Connor Phillips is a reliever. There's a chance for him to start. But I would say I'll, I'll put it at ninety nine point nine percent. Having seen him and I like him, I'm, I'll I'll put it at ninety nine point nine personally. Yeah, but I'm not going to go that far because as I've seen, like the Shane Bosses of the world have demonstrated, like being guys do weird things sometimes, right? Like, but I would say that the likelihood is is he's a reliever. I would say with Williamson, I would give a higher chance that Williamson's going to start. Williamson has a much longer track record of having success as a starter. So I, I would say with him, I would put it more as like, uh, it's kind of on that that fulcrum point where it could go either way. And a partly also that's going to depend somewhat on the situation with the Reds. Like I would say that as a Reds pitcher, he has a better chance to start than if you said like he's a Dodgers pitcher or something like that, <laughs> or, or, you know, where you'd be like, or a Rays or somewhere where you're like, well, I don't know if he's going to be better than these guys, so maybe he's ended up in the, in the pen. With the Reds, you just named it. Lodolo, Green, Ashcraft, and even Ashcraft is like a guy who could still be a starter, could be a reliever. Once you're past them, there are There's probably openings. going there are going to be openings, and Williamson is close enough to that where it makes all kind of sense to say, let's give him a shot to start if he has any issues we have let him work through it because as you said the goal is is to not win only 62 games this year but the goal is also not to win 92 this year and if he cost you a couple of games this year to make you better in 24 25 or 26 that's probably a trade-off the reds would be willing to make because it's going to be another i'm sorry reds fans but another rebuilding year JJ, one player who's not on the top 10 of this list is Matt McClain. He was the Reds' first rounder in 2021. He's already off the top 10. Um, I have a lot of history with him. I saw him at Beckman High School. I saw him multiple years at UCLA. I just went in and saw him in the Fall League last year. So um, I, I guess I want to start with you. What pushed Matt McClain off the top 10? Well, actually, I, I want to start by saying he was renowned as a, a really, really, really good pure hitter. And in fairness, the Reds pushed him very, very aggressively um, right to double A for his first full year. Um, but so far in his pro career, he's hit 243 in the minors, which is not what you wanted or hoped for, or expected out of a guy whose pure hitting ability was really his calling card. What's going on there and, and what is his outlook? And again, you have as much, if not more, history of him than I do. So I'll be interested in kind of like your, your thoughts on this as well. But what, what surprised me. He he was pushed fast. He was pushed, you know, to a high level pretty quickly and started out great and really tailed off, right? Like, if you looked at where Matt McClain was at that level in April and May, you'd be like, this is looking great. And then it really kind of, he seemed to hit a wall and it really struggled as the season went along. But the thing that I kept getting as I talked to evaluators from other teams about McClain was he just physically he did seem to wear down and you hope that that will get better in future years, but physically he's kind of limited. And I don't mean limited yeah. as in like, he's really stiff. Like sometimes you say limited is like, Oh, he's limited. He doesn't move very well. In McLean's case, it's like, it's hard. It's hard to see him being a guy who could handle the physical demands of being a shortstop at the big league level for a hundred and some games. His arm wouldn't hold up doing that. 
Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now, he's not a shortstop. No. There's no world even, he's a shortstop. He's a second baseman. But, That's But yeah. even at second base, even at second base, there is a question about whether he physically is better playing 80 games or 150. And he's going to have to get stronger to show that he can be that regular everyday big leaguer. Now, again, that's not a impossible to-do list for him. I, I would point out Spencer Steer again. Spencer Steer is relatively small of stature, but is physically gotten stronger and stronger to where that's not really much of an issue. But with McLean, he clearly wore down this year. Like if you looked at him and played people who saw him early season, late season said, you can just tell he kind of melted in the, uh, you know, in, in the, in these Southern league summer. And that's kind of a concern. Like a lot of people who I talk to see him more as a useful backup or a useful multi-position player than he is like pencil him in as a regular. Yeah, no. And I think that's spot on. Uh, again, I I've seen a lot of McLean and, and to be honest, I've never quite understood the the first round grades that were on him out of high school or college. Um, I think again, just he's just a smaller guy who doesn't impact the baseball, and that was always going to be an issue with him with a wood bat. Now there are times he'll flash it. You know, he had a long home run in the fall league. I mean, he he'll occasionally flash it, but doing it consistently has has always been a little bit of a challenge. Um, and, and I think the thing that has concerned me the most is, and you don't see this when you look at the strikeout to walk numbers just on you know on his BRF page, but when you go in and sit on him you'd see it. He'd swing and miss more than you would like against the better stuff. And, you know, he, he'd show the ability to make a two strike adjustment and occasionally put the bat on the ball, but it wasn't impactful when he did. And, you know, we saw that here at his first full season. Now, again, it was a very aggressive assignment and, and he knows the strike zone. He drew plenty of walks, but you can beat him in the zone with good stuff. And that happened a lot. Again, a guy who's supposed to be this premium contact hitter, um, I just never saw that player and 127 Ks and 452 plate appearances struck out a lot in the fall league again, 31 times and 97 plate appearances. He knows the strike zone, but, but he swings and misses against better stuff. When he does make contact, it's just, again, there's flashes of impacts, but it's never consistent. Then you add in the fact he, he, cannot play shortstop. He does not have the arm for it. And, and the range and actions are very second base. Again, I, I have just always seen a, a utility guy that to me I'd rather take in maybe the third or fourth round than a two-time first rounder. Um, again, he—I'll say this—he's a baseball rat. You know, he works his tail off, and maybe he comes back next year and shows some improvements. It wouldn't shock me at all, knowing the kid, knowing his family, if he is able to to get better. But you're right—he—he's physically limited, and there's things he just can't do on a diamond that prevent him from, from being a first round type of player in terms of the major league outcome. At least that's long been my thought. And that, that really jived with a lot of the reviews we got from evaluators. What would you say is, is the biggest thing he needs to improve? Is it simply strength? Are there swing path things? I mean, or is it just, Hey, this, this utility thing is probably the ceiling now. I, I would say he's got to be better again you what you said going into the season the bat to ball skills the you're not expecting a 30 home run guy here you're not really even expecting a 20 home run guy here but you are expecting a guy ideally who's going to hit 280 who's going to get on base at a 30 you know 340 350 clip to go with gap power that that's the guy who you're hoping can be a useful part of their big league team the guy who's striking out as much as he did last year who's not hitting for any impact and hitting 230, 240. That's, you just got to be better than that. And the thing that I will warn, if you're following it as we go forward into 2023, McLean is not far off the 10 right now. That said, there is a wave coming behind him. The thing that stood out about the Reds list when I did the, the, uh, the, the handbook and we do, you know, we do 40, we rank to 40. We're getting ready to post those all online, but our top 40, the thing with the reds, the thing that all their moves over the last couple of years have done for them is this, like there are teams where you get to 32, 33 and you're like, 
yeah, this guy's probably not going to, you know, really do a whole lot, right? You look at the Reds and the guys in the 15 to 25 range, there are a lot of really interesting young international signings who have performed. And the only, the biggest hesitation that I would say I have with them right now is you don't want to get too enamored over how good a guy is in the Arizona Complex League, right? That's great. Carlos Jorge, everywhere Carlos Jorge has gone so far, Carlos Jorge has been one of the better players in that league. There's still a little hesitation, though, because Dominican Summer League, Arizona Complex League type leagues, that's your the, 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 the consistency of the competition isn't there yet as far as what you're facing. But Carlos Jorge and Leonardo Balcazar and Yerlin Confidon and guys like that, Hector Rodriguez, those guys are going to spend most of 2023 in full season baseball. And I'll tell you right now, I'd be shocked if one or two or more of those guys, Victor Acosta, who they picked up, you know, like some of those guys are going to go to the Florida State League and they're going to perform. And I will tell you right now, I can't promise you which ones they were. They will be because if I did, I'd put them ahead right now. But if we get to the midpoint of this season, someone on that list is going to rank ahead of Matt McClain unless Matt McClain has a really big 2023 start to the season because these are guys who are younger significantly. And really, you just want to see them do it in full season baseball to add to that. Like, but these are guys who have talent too. Like they have talent, they have upside. And some of these guys are going to be top 10 prospects for the Reds. Again, I haven't mentioned guys who are a little further away, like a Ricardo Cabrera. Reds had another good international signing period in January this year. You know, there's a lot of these guys that some of them are going to emerge. And when they do, they're going to take the Matt McLeans and the guys like that, and they push them further down the list, not because of anything Matt McLean does, but if we, if he doesn't show that he's more than kind of a, a 45 slash 50 level borderline player, like utility guy, or maybe second division regular type. That's guy. more 40, 45. That's not 45. Yeah. 50. That's a 40, 45 player. Yeah. We have him as a 45 right now. If he's in that range, even at 45, well, we're going to have guys behind him who are coming up who project as 50-type players, who project as everyday regulars on a first-division team. And so that there's some pressure building from behind because the depth of the system is more impressive right now than the top-end talent, even though they do have a number of top 100 guys. Yeah, with that, you you mentioned a lot of really talented young players in this system, many of whom are international signees. If you had to pick one that you think is really going to pop, who's the guy? I just said, I don't know which one. If I did, I'd rank them higher. But I mean, uh, of that group, right? Um, I have a soft spot for Carlos Jorge. I It may be, I say that because he's the guy, like, I'm saying this, like this is when we do this, it is a balance of reporting and as well as like synthesizing as much as we can, what we believe internally, what we've seen in past experience and all that. And Carlos Jorge to me is the kind of player who, as he's coming up through the minors, often is a little bit underappreciated because he's not particularly physical. Well, he's short for one thing. Right. He's not, which is a, which is a, you know, I I think we found that short guys could be successful players if they're physically strong enough. Like absolutely, Nick Madrigal is not struggling at the major league level because he's short. Nick Madrigal is struggling at the major league level because he doesn't, is not strong enough to hit the ball particularly hard. Right. Jose Altuve was really, really, really short, but Jose Altuve also hits the ball really hard. That's a great combo. Jorge is short, but I think there is some physicality to him. And there's really good, really advanced, you know, plate discipline, understanding of the strikes and all for his age. I've 
enamored by him. I kind of feel like he's one of those guys who may end up being better than what a lot of guys who see him for a, you know, for a one week look may think. JJ, I do have to ask about two recent top draft picks, Austin Hendrick and Jay Allen. What's their status? I would say in Allen's case, like you knew that it was going to be a longer period. Like he was a multi-sport guy in, in high school, um, had a really great Arizona complex league and his numbers in 2022 weren't great, but at the same time, they weren't terrible. You always got to remember how scarce offense is in the Florida state league. Like it's one of the things where you see the Florida state league and you go, Oh, you know, man, that's a bad year. And then you go, no, actually that was a little bit above league average that happens because the FSL is that offensively, you know, it, it, it just squashes offense. And he, if you hit two forty in the Florida state league, you're like above league average. Thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs up. 240, yeah. 310, 380. Good year. You know, but on top of that, he made it up to, uh, to date, uh, to Dayton at the end of the year and didn't look out of place there in any way, shape or form. I think that with him, you still want to see him. He's got to he's still got to get significantly better, but at the same time, there are the attributes there that you want to see in Hendrick's case. You could kind of like the in Hendrick's case, when he was coming out of high school, the concern was there's no one questions that he's got incredible raw power. How well would that play in games? How, how much and contact so, will he make was a huge question. Yes. And it has and not so far. The football. answer is not enough. That's the answer. The answer so far has been not enough contact to get to that. Him and Reese Hines, who is another guy who fits. Reese Hines also had the same attributes, which was mega power and uh, concerns about swing and miss. Hines also has that, although I think that Hines right now has shown a little bit better ability to get to that power than Hendrick has. But I do think it's notable, like, if you look at the, we just talked about all these Reds international signings. The Reds clearly shifted their international philosophy as far as the players that they went out to get a few years ago, where they kind of de-emphasized great bodies and kind of went for, I, we're looking for baseball players. You know, we want some athleticism and all that. I'm not saying like, they're like, show me the guy who can't run at all or anything like that. But they were looking for guys who had demonstrated that they not only had tools, but they had skills that played in games. And you, you see that, you see the, the effects of that. You see the benefits of that. When you look at the Balcazars and the Jorge's and the Yerland confidants, and we could go down the list. We've seen these guys who, again, they're still in the lower minors, but guys who have performed, who have been among the better players in their league at the level that they're at. On the draft side, the Reds did have this stretch where they were drafting high school power. And that's a very risky demographic because at the it, it is harder for a great slugger to develop hitting ability than it is a young slugger than it is for a young guy with hitting ability to develop power down the road. And in the case of Heinz and Hendrick, at least so far, that, that's kind of been the issue. Yeah, again, all these guys are young. We'll see if they can turn it around. Hides did make it to Double A last year and, and has shown a little something, but um, yeah, Hendrick, it's been been a lot of struggles in the Class A levels without a whole lot to hang your hat on. We'll see if he and some of the others are able to turn it around. JJ, as we wrap up here, any final thoughts about the Reds, their outlook? I, I guess I'll ask. I mean, realistically, when's the next time you can see this team? Just having a winning record. Let's get away from playoffs for a second, but just getting back above five hundred. I actually think it may be closer than we think because as dire as this all sounds, right? Last year was big from the standpoint of there aren't many teams that produced two very, you know, two young rookie starting pitchers who you're like, nope, those should be fixed rotation fixtures for years to come. They got to stay healthy. But what Lodolo showed all year and what Hunter Green showed, especially in the second half of the year. Okay, great. That is a great starting point to build a team around. Now, if you can get up again, and this was, I, I would almost describe it as organizational issues, which is when you have to 
effectively give away a Tucker Barnhart and in doing so not have any viable catcher on your team when Tyler Stevenson goes down. And when I mean none, I mean, it was, who's our guy this week? No, next. Who's this next? This is a fun trivia. Can you name the Reds (laughs) catchers outside of Tyler Stevenson last year? This is, this is what it was. Aramis Garcia. I I think I could do this. Okay, let's do it. Aramis Garcia, Austin yep. Romine, Chris Oakey, Chucky Robinson, uh, Mark Colvasari. Oh, sorry, yes. Colvasari, yep. Then one more. There were seven total, weren't there? Uh, yes. I'm so going to blank if you on the Stevenson. The last one was Michael Papierski. Right. And now the other part of this is the second part of that trivia question is, is how many of those players – we're on the Reds 40 man roster as you know, by the midpoint of, you know, by the non-tender deadline one Tyler Stevenson. Yeah. They basically, they, they, they went through. And again, you can say they're a team that's win 62 games. It's not the worst idea in the world to see if you can develop another catcher. The answer is they didn't. And so, you know, but what I'm saying though, is, is that's kind of like, they had a lot of things go poorly last year at the big league level. And so you got the pitching staff. You should get Stevenson back healthy. And really, you now are going to have to hit on more than your share of what could be, right? You're going to have to hit on Ellie De La Cruz becoming a star. Between Noelve Marte, Evan Arroyo, and Cam Collier, one of those guys needs to be a great wingman in the next three or four years. Um, between when you said can Brandon Williamson or Connor Phillips or Chase Petty, or let's throw Andrew Abbott and let's throw, you know, Joe Boyle and Richie Karcher in the bullpen. Like they're going to have to hit on more of these guys than they probably it's realistic to think they will. But if they do, there's a path to again, 85 wins at some point, which depending on the year could get you into playoff contention. Now, the problem that you have is, is that at some point you, you got to kind of add to that team too. And that seems like something that, that in recent years, ownership has not been particularly willing to, uh, to really do. A bounce back year from Jonathan India would help as well. Um, again, there is talent here, but like you said, a, a lot has to go right. We'll see if they're able to make it happen. JJ, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate your time and insight as always. This was fun. This was fun. And uh, again, we'll be talking this time next year. You know, we'll, we may be talking about a uh, Ellie De La Cruz, who's now uh, established big leaguer. There, I mean, again, this is a team that could be more interesting, to, more less interesting for us to talk to from a prospect standpoint, but more interesting as a big league team to talk about over the next uh, you know 12 to, to 18 months. Yeah. We'll see where we are in February, 2024. All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.